believe it or not, the Alpha and Omega sits here among us, busily sketching a new gown for a new Jerusalem, all lace and glory. The tattered past stained with tears and riddled with sin, hardly a memory. We reside in the not yet, before goats and sheep are separated. But soon, in the halls of the throne room, out will come the ledgers, each loving deed and missed opportunity, noted and checked. I can't help but wince at the thought of all the not-dones, the cup of water not given, the hospital visit postponed, the bits of goodness left hanging because I was, wait for it, too busy. There'll be no time for do-overs then. Better make the most of each hour now before the king arrives. Today's scripture reading is from Revelation 21, 1 through 6, and Matthew 25, 31 through 46. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more pain, or no more death, or mourning, or crying, or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He, was seated, he who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. When the Son of Man comes in all his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father. Take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you as a stranger and invite you in, or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? The king will reply, Truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes, and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison, and you did not look after me. They will also answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty, or a stranger, or needing clothes, or sick or in person, or in prison? It did not help you. 
He will reply, Truly I tell you, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. Then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. The word of the Lord. The great temptation of the Western Church since the Enlightenment has been to assume that Jesus isn't really a king until a whole bunch of weird stuff happens according to a certain reading of the book of Revelation uh, at the end of history. And then Jesus will be a king and he'll take care of all those bad guys. End of story. Yay, Jesus won. It's a great adventure in missing the point when we read scripture that way. Jesus is already a king. And in this series that uh, we've been going through in the Advent season and in this Christmas tide that we'll begin to pivot away from uh, in Epiphany, uh, we've been trying to talk about what kind of king is Jesus? What, what, what kind, of, kind of royalty does he take on? Now, we are good North Americans, uh, unless... Unless you're Canadian. <laughs> I mean, but unless you're Canadian, the idea of royalty is kind of... <laughs> Although I didn't see Queen Elizabeth's portrait in your house the other day. I was kind of anti-monarchist that you must be. Uh, but... we don't really have good language to talk about Jesus as king. That king language is off-putting to us. We had a whole revolution a couple of hundred years ago to say, no, thank you. No, we don't want any monarchy. We don't want royalty. We're a republic. We're a democracy. Thank you very much. And yet... The scriptural language that is used over and over and over again to describe Jesus' continuing relationship with us includes, among other kinds of language, it includes this dimension of Jesus as king. And so, what kind of king is this? Is this a, is this a king who is an absentee king until... There's some heavenly tumblers fall into place and Jesus returns and then he's our king? Or is he also a king in the here and now? Is his kingship just related to those of us who are smart enough to have accepted Jesus? as our Savior and Lord? Or is he a king to everyone? And if so, what does that mean? Well, our two scripture readings this morning give us some clues into what kind of coming king we can anticipate. The Bible ends in Revelation 21-22. And it's, a, it's this beautiful passage that is interwoven with itself um, and, and helps us to see kind of the end game of the Bible 
in, in a fresh way. In the first eight verses, all the themes of God's endgame are laid out. The victory is proclaimed. The new city of Jerusalem is constructed. The dwelling is inhabited. God's world is renewed. God's word is validated. God's work is completed. God's final blessing is given. And God's final curse is offered. And each of these each of these lines in the narrative of the first eight verses of chapter 21 are reinforced in the second half of chapter 21 and chapter 22. And in fact, this forms a kind of, I know, big word time, chiastic form where points are being made and then repeated in a way that helps a verbal culture, an, an auditory culture, a listening culture, hear the deeper meaning of the text. We don't see it as well when we read it. But when we listen to it repeatedly, we begin to hear the themes emerge. And the way in which this chiasm is constructed, an A, B, C, D passage, it's that core, that that D-ring that is really important in this passage, verses 4 and 5 of Revelation 21. God's world is being renewed. Tears are going to be wiped away, John the Revelator says. This is the kind of king that Jesus is. He's a king who wipes our tears away. He's a king who defeats death. He's a king where the old order of sin is destroyed and a new world is dawning. And that end game, John tells us, is certain. God's word is validated. It is not just, I am the Alpha and the Omega. John says, write this down. For these words are trustworthy and true. John the Revelator is told that, that these words about Jesus, this promise of what kind of king he is, is trustworthy and true. That's not just rhetorical overreach. That's not just laying metaphor upon metaphor. Two separate words in the Greek are used in verse 5. Trustworthy is the word for it's relationally accurate. It's true between us because we know each other. Because we, because we understand each other. We know it to be true. And the word true is used. Aletheos. Meaning, it's fact. And in a post-fact culture, John the Revelator asks us, to suspend our post-fact world and live as if Jesus as King matters. To live as if the promise that wiping away the tears and defeating death has real, true currency. That it will happen. That it is happening.
but it has happened. That the cross ensures that the tears are wiped away, that death is defeated, and that a new world is dawning. All of this will be ultimately accomplished in a great new city and in God's glorious infrastructure, in a, in a newly built environment, a divinely built environment, where there will be the right blending of housing and garden space, where there will be green rivers, green, green trees and blue rivers. There'll probably be green, we have green rivers. Where, where the world as God intends it to be will flourish. And John the Revelator says, look, in the here and now, when it's not like that, when Babylon threatens and Rome chokes us and the empire wants to strangle us, persevere. Live as if this reality that is promised is actually among you. Be countercultural. That's the end game of the Bible. Not that God comes swooping down out of heaven and beams us up so that we can go inhabit somewhere else and leave this cruddy place to the dirty sinners, but so that God transformational work comes to fruition because we've acknowledged that Jesus is King and we've lived as if that's true. In Matthew's fifth sermon, the book of Matthew is really a collection of five sermons. There's the Sermon on the Mount, there are three sermons on the way, and then there's a second sermon on the mount. In his second sermon on the mount, Matthew gives us a glimpse into what the king expects of us. If we're to live as if God's new infrastructure is in our midst, what does that mean? Matthew gives us some ideas. He, he portrays a great eschatological event, a great gathering of the nations. And Matthew uses the same phrase, ta ethne, that he uses in Matthew 28 in the Great Commission. Go into all the nations. Go to the ta ethne. So this is the vision of the culmination of the Great Commission that is to come. Matthew's putting those two together. The end of the Gospel Jesus' disciples, his followers, then and now, will be commissioned to go into all the world and preach the gospel. When that job is concluded, Matthew lays out what will happen. There will be this great gathering, and Jesus will separate the sheep and the goats. Hate it when that happens. Because the sheep get blessed words. They get a, a promised inheritance. Now this is important. Kings have resources at their disposal and they give them away. If you've been watching a Game of Thrones 
on HBO, and I know you haven't because it's far too violent. <laughs> but if you've been watching it, you know that kings are always trying to grant favors, even favors that they can't really grant. They kind of pull it out of their hat in the hopes that they will advance their cause. Well, we're talking about a king who scriptures support the notion that this king owns the cattle on a thousand hills. It's all, it all belongs to him. He created it and named us stewards. And now promises this inheritance. And it's an inheritance that's based not on loyalty to the king, not on bearing the sword in battle for the king, but on responding to the marginalized in the world. The thing the king asks us to do is feed the hungry. Give the thirsty something to drink. Provide clothes for the naked. Shelter for the homeless. Visit those in prison. Those who have been marginalized physically, emotionally, relationally, economically. Unmarginalize them, the king says. He says, that's why you're sheep. That's why you're getting the inheritance. You've done that. And, of course, the, the sheep are all surprised. When, when, did we, when did we do that to you? And Jesus says, when you've done it to the least of these, you've done it to me. When you've seen the hungry and the thirsty and the naked and the homeless, when you've responded seen me. Now the goats are pretty nervous at this point, as goats often are, because a rupture is guaranteed to them. <coughs> Away from me, because when I was all of these things, you didn't come to my aid. And of course, the goats are just shocked. Well, when did we see you hungry, thirsty, naked? We, we never saw that. Yeah, you did. Because whenever you saw it, that's where I was. And there is this powerful, scary conclusion to the story. And they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. I thought I became a Christian when I was 14 years old. Because somebody encouraged me to pray a prayer, to confess my sins, and to invite Jesus into my heart. And I think there's truth to that. I think I said, yes, I want to go in a new direction. I want to follow a new king. I want to be, want to be bound to a different kind of loyalty. But I don't think it was until I began to see Jesus in those who were hungry, in those who were 
cold in the winter. Those who were homeless. Those in prison. Saw them not as a social problem, but as Jesus. We think that our name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life because we prayed a prayer when we were a kid. And that that means we can go do whatever the heck we want to do. You have indulged in a great adventure and missing the point. Point of the Gospel, according to Matthew, is that we invest ourselves in the marginalized, in the disenfranchised, in the very broken people that Jesus says, I'm going to heal their brokenness. How's he going to heal his brokenness? He's going to heal their brokenness through the church. Hmm. How are we doing? So what kind of king is Jesus? He's a king that's coming, that's returning to fulfill God's mission of reconciliation. To conquer and repair that which, is bro- that which has been broken. It's coming to fulfill God's mission of reconciliation. What's different about Christianity than every other religion in the world is that in every other religion in the world, it's about my quest to find God. Christianity is about God's quest to find us. To offer us healing. To fix the broken pieces. To make all things new. And that means we understand God's mission as the reconciliation of the marginalized. Those who have been physically disenfranchised. Those who have been socially disenfranchised. Those who have been emotionally disenfranchised. Those who have been economically disenfranchised. How do we do that? How do we participate in the reconciliation of the marginalized? That's always the challenge, isn't it? For many of us, and I would include myself, we want to do that through grand schemes of social policy and good-hearted, liberal intent to make the world a better place. We'd like to teach the world to sing in perfect harmony. We'd like to buy the world a Coke and keep it company because it's the real thing. But I want to read you a story. A story that comes of all places, from the American conservative. Comes from a regular blogger on the American conservative's blog site. He lives in Louisiana. And this comes from uh, August of this last year, during the time when there were floods around Baton Rouge. I've been out doing errands around Baton Rouge this morning. It's great to see handmade signs and shopping center parking lot saying things like shelter donation drop-off point. People are really, really pitching in. 
I've been complaining on Twitter here, uh, complaining on Twitter and here about the relative lack of attention the national media has been giving this disaster, given its immediacy, immensity, and severity. A friend of ours who's been doing Cajun Navy rescue runs in Livingston Parish told us that he's seen bodies floating in the floodwaters there. It's bad. It's really bad. And for people farther south and west of Baton Rouge, it's getting worse. But here's a story you should know about. It shatters the standard media narrative about America. You're going to want to sit down for this one. I'm literally wiping, I'm literally typing through tears. Ryan Booth comments in this website from time to time. Ryan is a white, church-going, Southern Baptist, conservative, heterosexual male. Ryan's been a public school math teacher and now tutors kids in math through his, through his small business. In 2014, he resigned his post on the Central Committee of the Louisiana GOP in disgust over what he regarded as the party's demagoguery over common care. His statement says, in part, while part of my decision to quit my political involvement has to do with disillusionment, a much bigger part of it is the higher calling that God has put on my life. Over the last few years, I have increasingly felt God pulling me into full-time ministry. Over the last few years, I've taught an adult Sunday school class at my church and led our Guatemala mission trips. But the call goes beyond that. In response to that call, I've applied to New Orleans Baptist Theological Seminary to begin a Master's of Divinity degree. So I really need to cast off that which hinders me, and politics hinders me. I don't have the time, and no tax cut ever saved anyone's soul. So this is a farewell of sorts for now. I have other work to do. The blogger goes on to write, Ryan has not yet been able to start his seminary studies in part, or maybe mostly, I'm not sure, over money issues. But that's where his heart is, not in politics. He doesn't consider himself a Republican anymore, but is every bit the conservative, especially religious and social conservative, that he ever was. He and I talk often about religious liberty. With that background, let me tell you what he did yesterday. I interviewed him about it because it was just so astonishing and inspiring. Here's what he told me this afternoon verbatim. I was reading, among other things, your post about what was going on at Celtic, one of the shelters in Baton Rouge, and knew from that and other people about the work going on there. It's funny, he said, Rod, because I just read in your draft of your book where you were talking about the hospitality of monks. In the manuscript, you quote uh, a monk at the Celtic, Brother Ignatius, quoting Matthew 25, 35, where Jesus says, I was a stranger and you took me in. And it occurred to me, why should we care for people at a giant shelter when we can take them into our homes? I have room to take a couple of people in. Now Ryan is divorced and shares custody of his daughter Grace with his ex-wife. Grace's mother just bought a new house and spent a lot of money and effort fix furnishing it. It's now underwater. Ryan saw to it that his former in-laws made it to safety. If I understood correctly, his former wife is taking care of them in another Louisiana town where they're not under flood threat. Grace is with her dad. 
And so we pick up the story again. Grace and I went to Celtic looking for people we could offer a bedroom to. We live on the third floor, so we couldn't take anybody frail or infirmed, which is what we would have preferred. There's no elevator, so we had to get people who could climb the stairs. We don't have room for a big family, but for one or two people. We found an African-American woman about 50 who looked like she needed a place to stay. We asked her, and she thought for a second and said, you know, there are a lot of people who need it more than me. I thought maybe she might have some hesitation about going into a stranger's home, but Grace could see that the lady was tearing up when she said it. Think about that. Here's a woman who's lost her home, who is living in a shelter. Man and his daughter come in and offer her a bed and a good, safe, comfortable place to stay. She thinks about it, but says, no, there are people needier than I am. Ryan writes again, it took us a while to find somebody who wasn't part of a big family. Grace and I weren't going to take a single man, which may not have been the best fit for our home, with just me and Grace there. Since the Salvation Army men's shelter had flooded out, you could tell there were a lot of people at Celtic who normally would be at Salvation Army. We couldn't risk taking one of them in. But eventually we found Jacob and Josh. They were eager to come. They had not slept the night before because of all the crying babies around them. They had been rescued by boat. They live in a second floor apartment, so most of their personal belongings are probably okay. They're still asleep right now. We're going to go over and check in a little while. I think the water's gone down. When people leave the shelter, they have to check out with the Red Cross so the Red Cross can keep track of who's there. When they were checking out, Josh gave his real name, Annabella. Ryan Booth, a straight Southern Baptist conservative, had inadvertently invited a female-to-male transgendered and his boyfriend into his home. Did that give Ryan pause? Not at all, he told me. In a sense, the opportunity to be a witness to somebody who may not be more unlike me might make my witness more powerful. I told Ryan that a lot of people who think that someone who fits his demographic profile would want to have nothing to do with someone who fits Josh's demographic profile. It sounds to me like you didn't take Jacob and Josh in in spite of being a traditional Christian, but you did it because you're a traditional Christian. Am I right? That's exactly why I did it, Ryan said. He added that he wanted to make sure Jacob and Josh knew he was a Christian so they wouldn't be freaked out by it. They weren't, or if they were, they were just too tired to show it. I told them that this is what Jesus told us to do. It's that call to hospitality. When we take somebody in, we see Christ in them. They bear the image of God. Again, it's just like what Jesus said in Matthew. When you take someone in who has nowhere to go, you're taking Jesus in. Has Ryan changed his mind about moral values and cultural politics? Not at all. Ryan's the sort of traditional Christian who believes what he does about sex, sexuality, and gender identity, not because he hates the other, but because he believes that Scripture is true. Understand it clearly, though. Ryan is a Christian who believes all Scripture is true, including Matthew 25. 
Ryan closed with, it's not my place to judge. In these circumstances, it's my place to love them. And this conservative blogger from the American conservative writes, that, my friends, is the Jesus way. No tax cut gave shelter to these refugees, a transgendered man and his boyfriend. A conservative Southern Baptist and his young daughter did because strangers needed it, because Ryan saw the image of God in them, because Ryan is a servant of the Lord. I want to say this as clearly as I know how to say it. I could care less what your political views are. I could care less who you voted for in November. I have my preferences, your preferences. What matters, and all that matters, is whether we are able to see the disenfranchised, the broken, the hurting, and not see them as a problem to be solved, but see them as Jesus. And respond to Christ in our midst. That's the only thing that matters moving forward. Whatever happens in the next four years, what matters is do we see Jesus in the lives of people around us who have been disenfranchised, who are broken? And so this morning, just one question. I could have written a bunch, but this is the only one that matters. When you and I see the marginalized, do we see a problem to be solved or do we see Jesus? When we think of refugees from Aleppo or Palestinians stuck in the territories, when we see the homeless in Riverside, do we think it's a social problem? There's somebody in Washington, there's somebody in the county government, there's somebody in City Hall who's going to fix this. Or do we see Jesus? That's the question. That's the only question. According to Jesus, that's the only question that matters at the end of time. I would wish a whole bunch of different questions mattered to Jesus. My life would be a lot easier. Your life would probably be a lot easier. But Jesus says the only question that matters is, in the marginalized, did you see me? One more thing. Lest you think I'm making this up. I defer to Mother Teresa as the expert who writes, at the end of our lives, we will be judged, we will not be judged by how many diplomas we have received, ouch, how much money we have made, or how many great things we have done. We will be judged by 
I was hungry and you gave me to eat. I was naked and you clothed me. I was homeless and you took me in. Jesus is a king coming and there will be a judgment. Not based on how big the church was or how successful our programs were or how well we prayed, but on whether in those moments when we encountered the marginalized and the disenfranchised, we saw Jesus and we acted accordingly. Thanks be to God for his word.